How you doing? Pretty well. How are you? Pretty good. Everybody, this is David Ohopsky, the Sea of Silent. I learned that. <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, wow. So I wear a lot of hats. Um, first, I would say I'm a you know I'm a husband and father um, to Brittany and my daughter Lila. She's two. Um, and then I would say next I'm uh, a student and uh, teaching assistant at Liberty University. Um, so I uh, help with the School of Divinity and I generally help with uh, apologetics related classes and theology related classes. Um, but my area of study is uh, philosophical apologetics. Um, so uh, after that, I also work with Rasha Christie. So you uh, see the little logo here. Um, so I can represent. Yeah, yeah I've seen Ratio Christie around quite a bit. Um, yeah. Is it um, is it like a, a ministry or an apologetics course or? Uh, yeah, so it's a it's a parachurch ministry. Um, so you know we partner with churches and things like that, but mostly we're kind of like Crew uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, except um, we're more apologetics oriented. So we have chapters at universities. We believe that we can make the most impact um, at uh, at the university because it is the intellectual center in which everything else is disseminated. Um, and so uh, we we mainly focus on apologetic evangelism, um, and uh, that's our main our main. We have some side projects and things that we do, um, but I would say that's the main thing. And we have chapters um, nationally, internationally. I um, I'm I oversee. Uh, Virginia, where I live, uh, Maryland and Delaware. So I'm an area ministry director. And then I also help with national training. And um, within national training, I help with, you know, chapter development and um, mostly apologetics um, training, internal apologetics training. So sweet. So how did you get into apologetics? Have you always been a believer or? Uh, uh, no. um, so I was, I, I don't know, I've had a, <laughs> uh, it's been a, a roller coaster. Um, in my life with, you know, just trying to find meaning and things like that. Um, so originally, um, I, uh, I don't know how far back I should go, but they, I think I'll just skip to the, <laughs> to, to the conversion <laughs> part. Um, it made, it mainly had to do with, um, uh, you know, emotional and intellectual problems I was having at the time. And, um, you know, there was, there was obviously looking back on it, you can see 2020, you know, as you're going through it, you're just trying to understand grasp at straws and things like that. But, um, looking back on it, you know, it was clearly, I had some emotional issues that I had to deal with. And, um, there was, you know, questions of like, how can God be a father to the fatherless? Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fatherless. And so how is, you know, how is God a father to me? I don't really, I don't really know what that looks like. Um, and then, you know, questions of um, hell and eternal punishment and things like that. Those were some issues that I had to deal with emotionally first. Um, and 
and you know when my mom would take me to church all the time um and she was <laughs> she was not the best person i would say to try to convert somebody but she i mean and i didn't i wasn't you know i wasn't really convinced because of any anything she really ever said but um uh she did bring me to church and she did you know allow the holy spirit to work um and eventually as i look back i can say wow okay whenever i had a question you know i seemed to find the right answer and things like that and um i had to deal with some emotional things but it was really the intellectual barrier that was like okay can you know like i can see this as like maybe coherent and consistent and you know maybe this just like any mathematical structure is co coherent and consistent you know you can you can craft a fictional world but is it true does it correspond to reality i had to i had to answer those questions of um you know, does this actually accommodate the data that we see in, in science and philosophy and things like that? So those are the things that I had to um, wrestle through. And then um, after after I found that there's enough evidence that uh, is convicting to me, um, I can actually make a decision now. So um, apologetics was that kind of uh, medium and avenue that like I, I was finding answers through, even though I didn't know it was called that at the time. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, kind of a similar story. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, people, anybody that's watching here that's watching any amount of time knows, you know, I kind of had a uh, went to a legalistic uh, church growing up and uh, hit the streets and really wasn't interested in God. I'd tell people I was a Christian or believed in God, but, you know, didn't really believe it uh, or really think about it much. And in my mid 20s kind of had a. Uh, crisis of faith, you know, it, it was a moment that uh, it's unexplainable. You know, I was working in a field on a, uh, my background is HVAC, and I was working on um, a cell tower in the middle of a pasture. And while working on the pasture, uh, cell tower, I was sitting there thinking, uh, you know, this was before cell phones. So we, we had, well, there were cell phones, but right. the company didn't have them. We we're a small contractor and they're just too expensive times. So okay. two way radios. And I was like, man, if something happened to me, I would die all alone out here and nobody would even know it. I could be here for hours before somebody knew. And then it just, you know, kind of just out of nowhere, these wheels just turning, you know, is God real? Mm. Is there a heaven or hell? Am I going to heaven or hell? You know, and it kind of just set me on this path that I had to know. And, you know, with the fundamentalist and real legalistic uh, background, from what little I did have exposure, um, you know, I was young earth creationist. I was, you know, uh, about as literalist and legalistic as it gets. And, so I was, you know, faced all these different challenges. I actually I hadn't even talked about this on here before, but I actually started talking about religion on the Internet um, when there was only AOL. And, oh, wow. Yes. And I you were, old, you were you were one of those old guys that I was like. I was yeah. 19 and I was like, I'm going to just mess with these guys and they're going to get all mad because they're just old guys and they're trying to be proper and they don't know how to do internet culture yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you something interesting. Um, kind of a side note. I'm a little ADD, so sometimes I might kind of go off on a tangent, but uh, I, got, I ran into this religious AOL chat room and I found Islam and I didn't know really much about Islam and it was 
they were some of the sweetest, most intelligent men in there that I had ever met in my life. I was stunned. I had some of the best conversations. So I really started to kind of, you know, doubt Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I kind of did like a Cartesian you know, doubting. I just, I was like, wait a minute, why do I accept Christianity? Just because I was told, you know, that Christ is uh, God, the son of God. And so it started with denominations. And then I went through, you know, every major religion in the world. I mean, hard studying. And uh, I was thoroughly convinced by the evidence for Christ. I was stunned that, you know, it's, it was a foregone fact and conclusion that Christ was a real man that walked and talked. And when I really understood that, I was like, wow, he's not like this Santa Claus, you know, this mythical person that, you know, we accept by faith and things like that. And um, so I kind of got into the intellectual side of Christianity and stumbled in, years later into reason and religion on Facebook and met all you guys. And it's been fun ever since, but uh, <laughs> so kind of the similar thing. And it's, it started out as kind of apologetics, but I'm, I'm far more interested in philosophy of religion than right. um, actual apologetics. I mean, nothing against apologetics. I just, yeah. you know, same, same with me. And, and uh, I see how it's manifested in different ways. And, and when you're focused just on apologetics, like there are, you are short-sighted in various things. And so I, I totally, <laughs> that's why I'm way more interested in philosophical apologetics as well. Um, but, but I, yes, it was, uh, it was so mind blowing to me to start to study other religions. Um, I mean, I started to study when I was a teenager and stuff because I was just, I was basically a spiritualist and I was interested in, you know, things like that. And I didn't know what was true and I was trying to figure it out. And, um, but to, you know, I was really a lot more interested in wow this 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 thing is so abstract and so ambiguous and and enigmatic and like a painting it's just like so enthralling and um there must be tons of meaning to it all these gurus and things and then and then i would be like wait a minute they don't seem to actually know what they're talking about (laughs) and you know and anybody could just make a splash painting and say there's so much depth to it and and everything like that and um when i i came across that same realization of like wow um, Christianity actually, you know, stakes itself and says, this is a historical claim. And this is something that we can investigate with the tools of historical science. And if it show, and, and if it's shown that um, this is not feasible, or we have poor, extremely poor documentation, then it's not true. And that doesn't happen for other world religions. And um, it's, it's pretty incredible. I, I currently help at um, uh, at Liberty University with the world religions classes. And um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's not even part of their thought process to, to, to like we have a, in Hinduism, we have a cyclical universe um, and in Buddhism, we don't care who said it. If Buddha really existed, he's so real in the innermost of your conscience that, you know, of your consciousness that he, that it doesn't matter if we show this to be historical or not. That's not the case with Christianity. Um, and then even with Islam, uh, you can you can talk about Muhammad and you can say he's a historical figure and things like that. Um, but then they make claims about the New Testament and you have documentation that precedes Muhammad. And, you know, so, you know, like clearly you're you know working with much higher quality data when you're talking about Christianity and dealing with 
is the New Testament corrupted and things like that. So it is pretty incredible. Um, the, the and that was the uh, I've I've not really cared so much about historical apologetics until um, I entered into the PhD program at Liberty, and I and I got to um, meet well. I, I'd been working with Dr. Habermas um, before with Russia, Christie and things like that, but actually studying under him, um, I've cared a lot more about historical historical apologetics and how he can use philosophy of religion and philosophy of science to determine, you know, are miracles possible and um, how can we determine whether an event took place, what are the criteria that we can use to judge if something hist is historically um, accurate and things like that. And um, I found it to be incredible. It's just completely opened my eyes to like the, the, the quality landscape of the, you know, Old and New Testament. And it's just, it's just amazing like how much, how much you can really do with that. Um, and like I said, I didn't really care so much about it before, but, um, as I looked to the depth of it, it just seems so, so, you know, thick with good information and high quality data. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, it's kind of the realization I came to. I love, I love, uh, Habermas. I've probably read almost everything that he's done, at least part of it, you know, with the ADD, if it's not on audio book, it's hard for me to get it. I'd rather listen to it two or three times than read it once. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was my finding. Uh, I started with Hinduism and with Hinduism, it was, um, there was so much uh, mythology and mysticism and depending on, you know, where in India that you're, uh, you know, looking at the historical um, narrative for Hinduism and things like that. It was just all over the place. I couldn't, to me, it just didn't, there were, it didn't um, correlate with reality the way that I knew and understand it. So um, I wasn't even remotely drawn to Hinduism. That, that was the same with me. I just, I just, it seemed to me because it's an open canon that's a game changer right. it doesn't you know like you can clearly choose whatever god you can bring jesus into the picture and they'll right. just be like yeah yeah another god and, right. and they were just so there was so many contradictory propositional claims and an infinite number of them that you couldn't really yeah. pin it down anywhere. yeah and so it's just um and because it's and it's and it's part of the it's part of the belief system, so I can't knock it for that. Um, but right. at the same time, it's not as falsifiable, and it's not as you can't test it as easily, and you can't you know have as much confidence in it because of that. So, um, yeah, yeah, and then you know went on to Buddhism, which I thought that um, it was a bit enticing to begin with, and then um, basically I realized it was like a radical type of idealism. It was, you know, the, everything that you experience is basically a lie. It's just this, this level of consciousness, you know, and I'm just like, what? And then I think the first writings weren't even till like a thousand years after Buddha. And I'm like, how well was this passed on? And did he really teach these things? And, you know, so I was left with way more, um, questions than answers with Buddha. Mm -hmm. it, it was the deeper I dove into it, the more convoluted it seemed to be. And um, so then I went to Islam and I was shocked when I realized that Islam was like 600 years after Christ. Mm -hmm. And when I started reading about Muhammad and he didn't even know he was a prophet, his uncle had to tell him he was a prophet. And then the visions that he had was insane. And, you know, the life of Muhammad and um, they consider uh, 
any scripture, whether it's Jewish, Christian, if it corresponds with Islam, then it's considered holy scripture. But if it gets out of line or disagrees with, you know, um, Islam or the, the Quran, then um, it's corrupted, you know. And then I started reading about, you know, these theories that um, Christ really was on the cross, but he was changed out at the last minute and really didn't die. And then all these. And I'm just like, what? Why, why right. would we take something that has this open and closed narrative and then 600 late years later, this guy has these crazy visions and for all, you know, for lack of a better word, lived a pretty evil life. You know, um, he was he was a pretty crude guy. Uh, right. so I just I, it left me with Christianity and Judaism. And, mm. um, you know, the more that I learned about Christ and, you know, the. I'm not sure how much you are into, you know, typology or typology, but, you know, looking at the uh, similarities between the, the types and, you know, the anti-type from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's just mind boggling. Um, you know, these different types of uh, what types, but, you know, the, the types in the Old Testament, just the, the cohesiveness, the synergy of it, the um, history that was there. And like you said, you know, so much that could have been falsified, you know, at the time of Christ or, you know, times before that. So, and uh, what really got me was I was mesmerized by the teachings of Christ. Yeah. It was, he was, I think every, every, anyone, even if they're not a Christian should read the words of Christ for, you know, at least it's philosophical and ethical um, content, because to me it was, probably the greatest philosopher in history, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's, you know, without going a hundred miles into it, that's, that's kind of how I settled on it too. So it's, um, that's awesome. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, you know, being a skeptic by nature, because I'm a skeptic, you know, I'm, the miracles were so hard for me to understand and things of that nature. So, but when you put it in perspective, it's like, you know, if God created the universe, how hard is feeding 5,000 people? How hard is yeah. people? I mean, that's, that's a drop in the bucket to uh, creating the universe. So, right. And, and uh, there's, there's miracles that people get hung up on. Um, like I know John Loftus uh, and which I actually <laughs> we've debated like in class, we, we had a class with Dr. Habermas where he was a, he was a, a guest and uh, we debated pretty good. And, um, but we, I mean, we, we love each other. Uh, and he, he's very hung up on this, um, the, the problem of like the, the virgin birth and how, you know, incredible it is and, and all of that. And, you know, there's, there's obviously uh, the, the, the Bible is, you know, entity laden with things that are unfalsifiable. And, you know, I'm, and I'll never say that those things are testable. Like there's people say there's demonic activity in that, you know, maybe that, that might be able to be measured at some point, but I, I haven't seen that my, myself personally, and I haven't measured it myself personally or any, anything like that. Um, and the virgin birth is something I can't go back in history and, and, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, did, did she conceive and can I get, you know, like samples before and after? No, I can't do that. So, um, yeah, there's things that are unverifiable. 
Um, and but but that doesn't that's not the central claim. The central claim is did Jesus rise from the dead? And right. if Jesus rose from the dead, then God, you know, he he put his stamp of approval on Jesus' teachings, and what he said was was with authority. And and you can retroactively say, okay, the rest of those things are true because of this. And you know, the probability of that is set on the bound of what's you know how how probable did did Jesus uh, actually rise again? Um, but you know, like you can work backward from that. So I, there's people who get hung up on miracles and things like that. Um, and I'm like, well, just test the verifiable ones, you know, like you don't have to go into, you know, you don't have to like go into Ezekiel and be like, well, I can't see this angel that has so many wings and so many eyes and so many faces. And <laughs> but the, the way I approach it is, um, if Christ is the son of God and Christ resurrected um and the gospels or the new testament has been has shown itself to be pretty reliable uh i don't think we have you know unless we're presupposing naturalism or some type of bias to miracles or things of that nature i don't see a reason to not accept it you know because if it if he is supernatural if it is supernatural and these claims happened and they haven't been shown to be false. Well, then the burdens on those who are trying to say it's false. I mean, there's just there's no reason to, you know, immediately go to skepticism. Right. Yeah. And, and then that's Swinburne's uh, principle of credulity. Um, where right. If a, person, if a person, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem either way that they have a reason to corrupt what was actually said or they or they're lying or and and, you know, they're just saying something you don't have any reason to to deny that you just say it's like 50 50 you don't have to and you know if you know that person then you have more reason to trust them but right uh, you don't have to like just be like well there's nothing jesus seminar and you know like there's <laughs> there's only a few sayings that we can actually hold to be even probable or things like that so yeah it's um i think too many people tend to be you know too skeptical you know there's um like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Liz Jackson and she was talking about, um, the, with skepticism that philosophers are typically global skeptics, but most atheists are local skeptics. They're not global skeptics. They only apply skepticism to a God claim. And traditionally, you know, it, it, philosophers, David Hume, and the, they were, you know, uh, global skeptics they were skeptical about everything and it and it becomes you know hard to justify and rationalize you know being a skeptic to just a god claim you know it's if you're going to be a skeptic it needs to be something that's applied you know across the board uh in order for it to be more defensible and more tenable so uh so i always get the question something like uh well there's a book and there's a man and he could fly okay well what's the book who's the man what's the background knowledge what's yeah. you know i'm not going to just dismiss everything outright uh because i kind of take more of like a a probability approach yeah. you know it, it's it's probably i mean it's not very probable that there was a man flying but if you start adding background knowledge that would support that well then that changes you know, the probability of it. And I think we should evaluate other claims, you know, 
like if someone talks about reformed epistemology, well, then someone else of another religion can have warrant for their. OK, that doesn't buy yeah. the warrant that, you know, Christians have, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it's there's a lot to it and a lot of people like to. Be overly skeptical and. Yeah, I, and that's why I, I mean I, I like the term skepticism in some contexts, but it's you know, and in common colloquial, like it's you know, you can use that word. But when you're te- getting into technical language, being a skeptic is being very different than being critical. You know, and and if you're just being if you're being critical, you're trying to develop an argument, and this is something that I see constantly, and this is actually something I see. Uh, a problem with a lot of apologists that I see um, trying to interact with other people where they just take this road of, let me try to undercut this person's opinion and uh, and just constantly undercut, 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 yeah. undercut. Okay, you can do that, but why don't you try to override their opinion for once? You know, why don't you try to build something and say, this is has rigorous methodology and and therefore my, I feel like my method's more tight in my data and my, I have higher quality data. Why don't you say something like that? It's much harder to be, you know, it's, it's way easy to be a, a critic. It's, it's, much e- it's, it's much easier to be a critic than to actually take the time to develop your case and, and you know, go through, the, go through the hard work of actually trudging through. Um, and I, I actually kind of find it, you know, pretty funny because it's like people get into philosophy and they, first of all, don't understand how much technical terminology there is everywhere that completely changes the entire perspective. Um, but but second, they just see, oh, there's all these problems with Bayesianism. Oh, there's all these problems with abduction. Oh, there's all these problems with, you know, induction. There's all these problems everywhere with all these things. We can't use any of those things. And therefore, my position's right. And I'm like, Okay, just because there's a problem doesn't mean like you can't use those tools. And in fact, you have to use those tools in daily living. And you being like somebody who has an HVAC background, come on, like, can you imagine going to a client and then like, you know, they're like, hey, this is not, you know, this isn't working and X, Y, Z happened. And you're like, well, really, did it happen? And, you know, like, come on, are you, are you kidding me? No, you're going to take like some abductive approach. You're going to be like, what's the best explanation? You're going to use Mill's methods. You're going to be like, okay, let me see if this works. Oh, that doesn't work. Well, that's connected to this. And maybe I'll check to see if this works. You know, you'll do something like that. You won't, you won't like just constantly be like driving this person nuts saying like you don't know what you you don't even know if i exist you know you don't do that (laughs) well it's funny you said that because i was just on a uh youtube stream last night um and we were talking about the very same thing and it's you know um when i have those conversations and and it goes to this skepticism about our ways of reasoning and things of that nature i'm like but wait a minute we do this every day in our life. Every day in our life, we use inductive reason, abductive reasoning, deductive reasoning. This is how we live, you know. Um, and I think you made a very good point there. And that's the, um, you know, having a critical analysis and developing a strong standpoint to come from, a good argument, a, a rigorous argument. And I think that's where... Um, apologetics kind of has it's been like a double-edged sword because now there is so many pop level apologetics available people go and they they learn just the surface of it and how to you know um just repeat it and and like you said there's there's very heavy philosophical weight behind 
a lot of the ideas that apologetics is built on, you know, and um, I mean, I, I'm not saying that it's not something people should do, but they, I think that people should be a bit more involved and, and really try to understand a little better, you know, the arguments that's going on instead of just. Or at least have intellectual humility. That's I think that's the bigger point. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Because, because I and this is, you know, I, I understand a person, a, biz, a person who's a owner of a business who spends 80 to 90 hours, you know, keeping their business afloat is not going to have time to research all of their, you know, methodology and make sure it's every, it's tight and everything. So I totally, I totally understand that. But at the same time, they can't have so minimal of a knowledge. And so, you know, and think that they're just so great and, and, and then like be an a-hole basically. <laughs> that One of the things that actually I'm accounting for in my, um, so with Ratio Christie, we're ha we have an internal training that I'm developing, um, and it's called Defensor Christie, and so um, it, it means defensor, uh, de defender of Christ, and that's, this is a program that um, we're making that's that's going to be transferable into Liberty and then other schools eventually. Um, so one of the, one of the things is I'm requiring that everybody takes a class um, called uh, Leadership and Intellectual Virtues. And it doesn't actually count for any course credit unless you're doing undergrad. Um, it counts for uh, it only or it counts for undergrad credit, but most of the, the program is built to be credit for for graduate level. And um, but I'm requiring that everybody takes that no matter what first because I don't want to just send out a bunch of a hole apologists, you know, that just think they know so much and then like just you know first of all make everybody else who has done a lot of hard work, look like fools and, you know, and that, that we're part of a group. Um, but, you know, I, like, I, I just, I've just noticed, I've seen two types of apologists, guys who can laugh at themselves or guys who are a-holes, you know, and they think they know everything. And um, I, I'd prefer to cultivate the, um, the guys that can laugh at themselves. And so I'm requiring that. And, um, you know, there's Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work in, in helping to understand, you know, like how to be intellectually humble and, and using uh, your recognition of cognitive bias and things like that. And so we're incorporating some of that uh, content in there. But um, I think one of the main things is just realizing how, how many cognitive biases that you have. And, and uh, that, that's, that's going to be a huge part of it. And then also understanding what are intellectual virtues. So what does it mean to be intellectually humble, intellectually open, you know, have intellectual courage, have, you know, all of these, um, these intellectual virtues, virtues of the mind um, that allow you to, to not only think better, but just be a better person uh, as you, as you continue on your intellectual journey. Um, and, you know, I, like, I, if a person is sincere, you're also more willing to listen to them and you're, and you're, they're a better communicator. And that's the role of the apologist. Anyway, you're, you're supposed to be somebody who's able to deal with tough, lofty issues, but also mediate that and disseminate that to the laity. And, um, and how can you, how can you communicate if you think you're so above everybody? You have to be on their level for them to actually trust you and actually change minds and things like that. So, um, but yeah, we're requiring that class for that reason. Yeah, I, I agree completely. That's, um, you know, um, years ago, I was that a-hole. <laughs> so, <laughs> I learned a few things about philosophy and uh, took off running and uh, run into a couple of buzzsaws. It was like, wait a minute. I don't know as much as I thought I knew, you know, it's, but intellectual honesty and humility are two of the greatest things that you can have. You know, you, sometimes you just have to say, I don't know. 
Right. And you have yeah. to be open to change your mind as well. And that, that's, that's, that's one of the things I've seen also with apologists that um, are, it's like, even if they, you know, walk this tightrope of, of rhetoric and they're able to say like, you know, I'm going to listen to you and blah, blah, blah. They're actually not willing to change their mind. And I'm like, that's not being actually godly. You're not willing to find the truth. Is that what you're saying? You're will you want to, you're basically like, you know, undercutting this person from the get-go and just like deceiving them basically, um, just to have them change their mind. It's like, no, you to have true communication means to say, I'm actually willing to change my mind as well, you know. So absolutely. And that's that that's very important. And uh I've made it clear, you know, many a times if you know, I'm I uh the moral argument was one of my favorite. I still think it's a very strong argument, but so many people have heard so many, you know, um, rebuts to it that you go in circles and it's just, to me, it's not even worth the time of trying to defend it anymore most of the time. So I usually really don't even go with a moral argument, you know, yeah. because if someone's, you know, well-versed in ethics and they have some type of, you know, um, moral realism that's uh, um, normative or something like that, you know, well, then we're just combating two different worldviews, you know. And I can say, well, you really don't have objective morality, but, you know, <laughs> they're usually that far into it. They're, you know, well-versed enough that we can go in circles, you know, right. and I was like, so I think. You know, to me, um, I think the contingency, the, the the set of cosmological arguments, to me, are the most convincing to me. Um, so that's uh, those are the ones I like to kind of focus on. I like, you know, Josh Rasmussen's uh, contingency argument and um, the Kalam. I mean, that's m most atheists who've, you know, been around philosophy or religion long enough. And once they really grasp, you know, the Kalam, um, the fullness of it, you know, and the implications of it, there's a lot of them that'll readily admit that it's a pretty good argument for a first cause, you know. And um, so a lot of people like to leap to, well, that doesn't get you the Christian God. Well, that's not exactly what I'm trying to do at the moment, you know, because you're an atheist, which means you don't need any God, you know. So, now, I do believe that um, the Bible actually describes the same God that's being um, shown through the Kalam. Um, but I think it's a lot of uh, uh, work, you know, a lot of filling out and supporting to show that. So I usually don't try to go, you know, hey, but it is the Christian God because of this, this and this, you know. Mm -hmm. I'll typically, typically, you know, go to the resurrection or something like yeah. that. So yeah, and that's a, I mean, that's debated within Christendom as well with um, people who are a lot more um, have a lot more fideistic types of apologetic methods, and they they don't want to admit any sort of natural theology because it's not giving you the whole of Christianity and things like that. And um, and and I just find that like. I'm just like, wow, how do you even go about like categorizing anything at a higher level at all? How do you generalize anything whatsoever? Um, and it, it's actually very, uh, this is one of the areas where I think it's really interesting that people should um, take a little bit more time to study in because this is a, a, a principle that crosses between disciplines. Um, looking at something 
at like so um i've also studied under dr baggett um david baggett who has worked on the moral argument the abductive moral argument a lot um and he, he would disagree with you on the impact yeah, of the force I, of it. but yeah. but he but i mean i mean i actually i like a posteriori um arguments way more than a priori and and i and i see the moral argument as something that is fits more into i mean it's in the middle ground but it's more a priori and existentially i think it could be you know you can make a great case just like your daily living how can you ignore ethical principles and and ethical realism that's grounded in something like divine commands and or something like that but um but the bigger point is uh he would talk about something as being um uh fine-grained versus being coarse grained and when you're talking about generic theism um you know like uh just a sort of like maximally great being or something like that um like an, an anselmian god or something you're you're talking about um you're you're saying that you have a coarse grain understanding right now and then we can get into the finer grain details and then maybe that works itself out to be um jesus as the son of god and you know and you have a lot more content there um, but it's so interesting to me where like when people start talking about things on a high level, they lose sight of this. And, it, and, and I think it's a very important distinction. Something's being fine grained or coarse grained. And this, this is in ethics as well. When you're talking about, um, thin concepts versus thick concepts. So a thin concept would be like, um, uh, a, uh, it would be like goodness, simpliciter, you know, like something, um, more, Moore's, um, you know, argument, uh, for, uh, goodness being non-natural, something like that. So just goodness implicit, or that's a very thin con uh, moral concept. And then you have um, like very thick moral concepts such as honesty or something like that. And and to have like, uh, and to not understand those levels of explanation, um, really you lose sight of a lot of uh, where a person can talk past each other really quickly. Um, this, this happens also in psychology. They talk about, um, you know, something being high resolution. You're looking at something very high resolution. You're looking at all the details, all the pixels. Like you can see the football game. You can see that ball, you know, flying through the air, every blade of grass. Um, and then you have, and then you have low resolution. You could just see it from afar as you're seeing the whole stadium, all the crowd and everything, you know, right. uh, and to, to argue and say, and you're talking, you know, one person's talking about you know, what's happening from the stadium, from the, you know, aerial point of view. And then the other person's talking about like the blade of grass. You're, you're clearly going to be talking past each other. So um, yeah. I think that's a really important um, distinction to make that I don't really, um, I see a lot of miscommunication. Um, yeah. It, for, for the record, I do think that the moral argument is very strong. I just yes. don't. <laughs> and it's, it, to me, it's something that's better done in the, at the academic level because, yeah. Yeah, it's you like, a, you know, with the pop apologists, we have the pop atheists, too, you know, who follow uh, Sam Harris and, you know, these these different, you know, moral realist from uh, secular perspective and things. And I just to me, too many times we end up just going round and round. Right. Rhetorically, it's just it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. So it's it's kind of one of the what just the ones that I avoid now. Um at the academic level, I would agree completely. I, I think it's an extremely powerful argument for because we I mean, it's it's so intuitive. It's, you know, if you don't have a way to um, really have objective morals, you know, yeah. if you don't have a source, then they really aren't objective. 
And that's, that's kind of the thing that gets me with, you know, a lot of these um, uh, normative and, you know, irreducible. It's like, we're just stopping with like, brute facts, you know, it's just, it's like, I I don't like brute facts. I don't like just (laughs) stopping right there. That's why I chose the name of this because I've heard it so many times, you know, in these conversations, it's, it it just, you know, like Craig says, it's a lot of times it's like a taxi cab fallacy. It's really a fallacy, but it's, you know, it's, it's like they, you know, they get right to that point and they're like, no, this is good. It's a perfect. Yeah. Yeah, So, (laughs) but no, we both have a lot of very smart, sharp atheist friends. And oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. this is this is actually a very interesting distinction too that um, I want to point out that I see uh, I see Thomists make I see presuppositionalists make I see normative realists make um, and it's the idea that because something is more primitive conceptually and you know you've broken down the sentence into words and the words into symbols um, so you're just representing you know the most minimal atomic pieces of you know the sentence and so you have like a copula or something like that you you know they they say they say that the more primitive it is the more certain we are of something and i don't see that at all i don't see that i don't see that in reality at all just because something is more primitive in your head means it corresponds to reality no that's actually never like the actually it's the opposite the more you generalize things to be closer to first principles and more primitive the less likely it is to be true. And the more you have to test for it to be true. Um, and so the more, you know, and you see this, uh, just look at any study at, at all whatsoever. You can't, you can't just say that I've done um, this study on 20 people and I've got this result and let me generalize it to 5 million people, you know, like that, that's, it's less likely to be true at the 5 million level. So why do you think it's more likely to be true at a more primitive conceptual level? You're general, you're just generalizing more and that makes it less probable. Um, and I've, but this is something I've seen, uh, like I said, with pro, with Thomas, with with uh, presuppositionalists, and with normative realists. It's it's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, that, so, and, that's a very good point. I think it's because the um, you know you find you you use a priori reasoning, you have a priori beliefs, and you start with these things like such as causation, um, which seem to be synthetic a priori, you know, uh, truths like geometry and stuff like that. But then I just go back and say, hey, geometry. People can formulate any sort of, they can take any set of postulates, create any theorem and develop any sort of geometry of any figure. And it can, and it might not correspond to the world whatsoever. In fact, you have way more possibilities that it won't co- correspond to the world. And so why do you think that this, because, you know, it has, it's more conceptually primitive, primitive and it's, and it's certain based on its inter- internal consistency and coherency that it's more likely. I don't see that to be the case at all. So. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. That's and and you're actually right. I have I've seen quite a few um on both sides uh do the very same thing. So yeah, it's when we get to it's like we were I was talking on the stream last night, um, you know, when a lot of people don't realize that, you know, the apologetics stem from the philosophy of religion and um, same thing with uh, a lot of the counter apologetics is they stem from, you know, philosophy of religion. And 
people throw so many terms around and it's, you know, and I'm just like, I'll get, can you just say yes or no? I'm like, wait a minute, hold on now. Let's, you got to understand that the, the people that I talk to for years, I don't, you don't just say yes or no. You, you got to be very careful with your words and, and very precise um, because if you're not, you're going to talk past each other or you're going to come off as not knowing what you're talking about. Um, and you probably don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, when they, when I hear someone say, you know, well, how do you justify that? And I'm like, I justify, you know, and I was explaining reformed epistemology last right. night too. And, um, they couldn't get past the weaker warranted claim, you know, but that I don't know how you can just, I'm not, it's not justified. That's the whole point is it's a weaker, you still have an epistemic duty, you know, you, you, and if you have any defeaters, then you should abandon it, you know? And, right. um, I, I, for a long time, I called myself reformed epistemologist. Um, I, kind of leaning more towards the evidentialist now. Um, Tim McGrew and um, Trent Doherty. And, you know, after listening to quite a few of their stuff and I'm kind of torn now between internalists, externalists, and I'm just like, I don't know. I, I, don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, I love Kleininga. I love what he developed. Um, and given, you know, if there is a sense of divine, as Calvin said, then then you can um, know or be, you know, warranted in believing that right. there's a God. You can always be prima facie justified. Right. Exactly. And just like just like any sort of seeming that you have about like anything you see. Oh, you thought you saw a car pass by and you can't go to check it. Hey, maybe a car passed by, you know, like. Whatever, that's fine. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more. It's much more right. significant when you're dealing with what's the consequences. And, and well, it, that's kind of one of the things that, you know, um, somebody was like, well, wait a minute. But and as I'm explaining, I'm like, now, hold on a second. Let me, let me let, planning to develop this over like 20 years, I think it was. And it's like a, it was a five or seven volume set that he released. So I'm like, there's there's a lot of support there. I'm not going to do it justice. You know, you need to see, you know, uh, Dr. Tyler McNabb or Dr. Moon or, you know, uh, Plantinga himself, <laughs> because yeah. there, there really is a lot to it. It's a lot more than what it seems like, because it, it to a lot of people, it seems too simple to. I would, yeah. I would, because I'm much more, like I said, up a posteriori person, you know, objective probability type of thing. Uh, so I'm definitely with Trent on that. Um, I would recommend um, Justin Barrett. He's a cognitive scientist, um, and he he does he's done a lot of work in developmental psychology. And he's actually a person that um, Planninga would look to for more information because he he showed that children naturally have this. You know, it, he wrote a book called um, I think it was called Born Believers. And, um, you know, he went through all the literature, the interna internationally um, cross-cultural literature on child development, showing that, uh, you know, kids naturally tend to see an immaterial agent, you know, that has causal impact on, on the world. And, and you know, this these agents and um, maybe one grand agent is you know, super knowing, super perceiving, um, extremely intelligent. 
um, and a moral enforcer, things like that. Uh, he actually came up with a lot of very interesting findings. And you know, like I said, I, I still, uh, I'm, I still, the, you're dealing in the realm of of developmental psychology here. So this is on the borderline between a priori and a posteriori. Um, so you know, that's still something you still have to investigate. And and then like on the practical level, does this seem to make sense? You have to decide that. Um, but I but I I highly recommend checking out that and. Yeah, and that's I definitely will because I'm interested myself in the psychology of um, beliefs period is that's kind of the direction I'm starting to go now because, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just stunned at how two people with similar backgrounds and similar skepticism and similar, you know, analytic way of thinking can look at a set of facts and just come to two totally different conclusions. I'm just like. How? How is that possible? So, right, right. Um, and it was Barrett was his name. Yeah, Justin Barrett, and it's um, B A R R E T T. Um, so two R's, two T's. Okay. All right. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely interested in that one. I'll check that one out. So, do you guys have um, over at Ratio Chris? So, who who else a part of? It's a pretty big organization, isn't it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's international, gen- I mean, like if you want to, but it's mostly in the U.S. But um, yeah, so, you know, Corey Miller's the president. Um, and then we have, uh, we have Larry Baxter as the uh, CFO. And then we have a lot of different, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a national organization and then we're split and, and we each have area ministry directors that go oversee states and then chapter directors underneath them. Um, so uh, it's, you know, with COVID and things like that, it's it's kind of like cut back a little bit because you can't really meet on campus right. as much anymore. And there's so much more legislation and stuff that's like everybody has to be particular and everybody is trying to be safe about it and, you know, like uh, still promote the sanctity of life and, and things like that. Right. Um, but it's still like every we've still been meeting on Zoom and things. Um, and it's been great. I've I've uh, I've really enjoyed um, working with Rasha Christie. And, and I see the potential for it to develop, to develop, you know, quantitatively and qualitatively um, a lot in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. So are they going to have any online stuff or is it strictly for in person or how does? Um, Yeah. I mean, well, we are doing a lot more online now and we probably are going to extend that to indefinitely in the future. And there's been some chapter directors that have been putting together um, symposia and have, have had like amazing speakers um, all, you know, come together and and do it that way. Um, Obviously we're way more interpersonal and the whole reason that we're, you know, doing it, we have the type of, model that we have is because we think you can reach a person much better in person and you know there's a lot more relational cues that you're aware of (laughs) going on in person rather than online um but i think now we're going to have we're going to make room for online um certainly with like the program that i'm working on and others so that's cool man it's uh we definitely need some more training programs we need we need to get people trained up and warriors (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> warriors for Christ. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's bring out the militants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's make everybody extremely presuppositional and Calvinist. And there we go. Yeah. Oh, precept. Oh, my brothers and precept. Oh man, that's. I kind of. That's kind of where I started out. I just fell into it. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know what I was doing this side or the other, but 
it was two guys I was listening to on a podcast, and I don't remember their names, but they were pretty much just Vantillian. They weren't um, like Greg Bonson or, mm-hmm. you know, the as a, it slides downhill to Psy 10. And then <laughs> <laughs> I hate to talk about my brothers in Christ, but man, right. it's, some of them are... Oh, they just watching the 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 conversations. I'm like, okay, look, look, look. We all have to use logic, we right? Are. We all start with we we all and we uh, Let's advance the conversation, please. That's where I'm saying that's an example of like just undercut, 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 yeah. undercut. It's like, are you building anything? No, you're just starting with all of it. You think you could just start in paradise? It doesn't work that way. No, we all have to work through like looking through our eyes and believing that the external world is like, you don't just start with all of Christendom and understanding of the entire inerrant Bible behind you. Like that nobody does. That. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's, um, so when I stumbled upon this, uh, uh, atheist group that I've been doing a lot with over at the atheist round table and they're, they're real cool guys. I found this, um, several apologists out there I had no idea existed. Um, and these are like people that worship Kent Hoven. And um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kent Hoven. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't looked a ton, but I've, I've seen enough. But, yeah. yeah, and uh, one of them is, was, I think it's Batman or something like that. Darth Dawkins, or and they're just this horrible precepts, man. And it's like, it's I'm just like my ears are just bleeding, and I'm I'm like, and in the debates, I'm like pulling for the atheist. I'm like, come on, guys, because every because you can't even start to fight my position unless you justify where you get. And I'm just like, man, just that's, that's actually very interesting. Um, because the um, Russia Christie has actually worked with um, with uh, Doctor Bogosian, um, you know the street epistemology guy. Yeah, um, yeah, Peter, yeah. Recently, because we have common enemies of like um, postmodern, you know, literary theory and stuff like that, developing into like general hermeneutics and stuff, and you know, so we have we have common enemies. And I actually, every, I something that I like, I I felt like I always knew and. Um, but I just didn't see other Christians grasping is that we're always, we're always unlikely bedfellows with every belief system when it comes to other belief systems, that's just the nature of belief systems. And, um, and so a great example of this was, uh, there was a bunch of, um, street epistemologists, um, who were going down, who were going to go down to North Carolina to a flat earth conference and like do their whole street epistemology thing. And a bunch of Christians were like, Hey, can we join you guys? Like, can we talk to, and, and they were debating, you know, like flat earth Christians, flat earth or Christians with, with street epistemologists on their side, you know? And I was just like, this is like one of the greatest things I've ever heard. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because that's kind of how uh, I ended up uh, over with the atheist round table stuff. It's the, you know, uh, fundamentalists, like the, the, the real, strong fundamentalists are we have a common uh enemy and it's and it's not the people you know it's it's the mindset it's the dogma it's the you know so that's how we hit it off now it's funny you mentioned street epistemology because my only um 
exposure to it was um, the original street epistemology to, you know, basically make atheists and, you know, deconvert and things of that nature. Um, and but these guys, it, it's just so when I first went on the show, I was like, wait a minute, man, y'all do this whole street epistemology thing. I can't justify my beliefs or anything else without you know, showing the problem with street epistemology, which there's a whole lot of them, you know, and, um, but the way that they do it is not like a deconversion tool. They use it like the Socratic method. And once they get somebody to the point of thinking, then they stop. They're not there to, you know, take all this stuff. And so I really admire the way that they use it. And, you know, and I told him that I was like, look, I, this is the first time I've seen anybody use straight epistemology like that. And it's it's uh, it, it's a real helpful tool if it's done right. Right. And I think it's just I mean, that's just a natural way of doing philosophy. You know, the way that Aristotle viewed it as an activity. And it's just are you, you know, questioning things and and how can and how can you evoke wonder in a person to think more deeply about something and have a broader perspective and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, th- and I think they had some growing problems when they first came out, just like any idea, you know, set of ideas does. But I think after it's grown into what it is now, I think it's much more of like, are you critically thinking? And I'm glad they're asking that question to people. Are you critically thinking? Ask that to every Christian. Are you critically thinking? That will eventually, if you think that what you have is truth, that will make a person more confident. So yeah. why not celebrate that? Yeah, and well, I mean, and and to be fair to Peter, I mean, Peter's changed a lot since he wrote that book too. He's right. you know, yeah. it, he's uh, doesn't view it as a deconversion kind of thing. And uh, from what I understand, his next book was actually a pretty good book about tough conversations or, mm-hmm. or things. And uh, but that's cool. I did. Uh, I I saw that you had mentioned. Um, in the group that uh, you you guys work with Peter and that's that's pretty cool because I hadn't heard that name in so long and when when you mentioned it uh or you know when I was talking about the street epistemology and he's like yeah he he, he works with us sometimes I was like what yeah <laughs> no no way the yeah. atheist manual guy come on <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's the same with John Loftus like I would have never yeah. like when I saw his stuff on Barnes and Noble I was like who's this guy you're ridiculous yeah. I hate this guy and then like when I after I got to talking to him and stuff like he's a great guy and you know he's he's a polemicist like he think he like I, I told him like dude you sound like Nietzsche like and I wasn't trying to be a, that wasn't a compliment or like I was just like, you just sound like Nietzsche. And he's like, thank you so much. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I don't know too much about Loftus, but I've heard uh, a lot of not nice things about Loftus. Um, you have to show him respect. And like, it's like you, you get what you give sort of thing. Yeah. He'll, he'll automatically, you know, like give you crap and if you can take it well it's kind of like i, I played basketball for 15 years and I was, oh it's all like, now david <laughs> my sport, man. no way that's awesome yeah. <laughs> but you know how it is it's like you get on the court and you and you're with your group of guys and then you see another group and you're like let's mess like you know obviously i'm not going to say everything that we used to say but let's let's yeah. f these guys up and and then like you, you get really into it you get you get close to getting in fights and then after it's all done, like you, you know, you like you high, you high five, you hug each other and everything sweating 
you know, like shirt off and everything. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then you love the guy after. But if you don't, if you don't make that move at the end, you're not going to be cool with them for the rest of the time you ever see them. And and uh, but if you do make that move, you guys are going to be buds every time you see each other. And I think it's like that with with Loftus and other people like that. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. They give due respect, man. It's you know we we might bud heads, but at the end of the day, we had the same goals. You know, it's uh, most of us for the most part want to find truth. Right, know? exactly. And yeah. it's funny you're talking about it, with the basketball because we, you know, being from uh, Memphis, you, you're you you can't be a Memphian if you don't play ball. You know, that's kind of like your uh, rite of passage. You know, so but it, we played um, from the time. I was about 10 or 11 until mid 20 street ball every afternoon, every weekend. We had a local park that we'd go to and the benches would be lined with people for people to have downs. And what's, what's weird is the older I've got, the more of a germ freak I've turned into. <laughs> so I'm thinking back of the days that we were all sweaty, guarding each other, no shirts on, arms on them, hand checking, you know, all of this. And I'm just like, ew. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I, and I didn't care back then, too. And I like I wouldn't even there'd be some days I'd be like, eh, I guess I don't need a shower. <laughs> and I'm like, man, that was disgusting. Like back. But I mean, and I would get some bit like I, I would always play center. I mean, I wasn't super duper tall. I'm like six one, six two, yeah. and, uh, and but I was super thin back then. Um, but I had hops, and so I could get up. And uh, because of that, I would I'd always play center, and I'd have the biggest guys on me, dude. Like I'd have like three hundred pound guy just shirtless, just coming down all up on me. And yeah, <laughs> that's I, mean, awesome. I mean, like you know, other than the smelling part, but you know, <laughs> I even did jujitsu for a while. And wow, you're rolling, and, man. And, and, and yeah, the um, and I was just like, you know, th- this is gross, this is nasty. <laughs> We're like stinking and sweating all over each other. And it just yeah. oh, I could. I remember the first time I rolled with a guy who was wearing a cup. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, oh. the oddest, weirdest thing in my life. I'm oh, like, bro, why, why are we? why are you rolling with a cup, man? It's like when you are like, you know, when he mounted me and I just got this thing in my chest, like this, I'm like, get off me. <laughs> it was, let me tell you something. When something like that's weird, you get them off of you pretty quick. Yeah, dude, I'm that, like, I'm, that, I'm done. <laughs> Do you know how I got into jujitsu? I had a friend of mine who, uh, I did a little bit of boxing when I was young and, um, so, you know, with my friends who weren't good fighters or big fighters, you know, it's like, oh, no, he's a boxer. He's a boxer. It's like, no, I wasn't a boxer. You know, I just I did some training and stuff. And um, so he's like, man, yeah, you need your with your boxing. Come on up here. And, you know, and I'm just like, whatever. Mid 20s, you know, I'm, I was like, I need to get back in shape. So I went up there and I rolled with this 17 year old kid who tapped me out in about 15 seconds. Dang. And I was like, bro. This is what I want to learn. Yeah, this is right here. Put me in an arm bar before I knew I before I even knew what he was doing. He had yeah. me in an arm bar and I was like, "Ah, okay, I need that arm, you know." So, uh I fell in love with it, but That's rolling awesome. with, Yeah, rolling with them young guys. They they only know 100% and I kept <laughs> injured and injured and I had a career and I was like, "Man, I just can't keep doing." Yeah, that. that's yeah. 
y'all are hurting me. I, I can't do it. So, yeah, it's uh, so Tim Stratton plays ball. Um, um, oh, how do I forget his name? ID Apologetics. Uh, Adam, Adam Coleman. Adam Adam. Coleman plays. Oh, oh, true ID. Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah, Adam Coleman plays ball. You play ball. I play ball. What's up? (laughs) Hey, you know, Adam is only like a few hours from me. I think he's like two hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was, uh, I had, he was my first show ever. I was, uh, I was stoked that uh, he was like, yeah, man, absolutely. I was like, Sweet. <laughs> Somebody who has a following is going to come on for the first show. So. Did you see that he's, he's contributing to, to that new book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And he's going to um, – he's going back to get his doctorate too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What's the doctorate in? Um, you know, he's on the show. He's like my master's <laughs> in social work, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because, I mean – you know, after Tim getting his doctorate and um, I mean, just all the people in the group that have degrees, I'm sitting here like, I don't have anything, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. So um, I actually uh, registered to start a bachelor's in mechanical oh, yeah. engineering. And yeah, I saw that. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. That's yeah, super sure. cool. And yeah. I think it's so cool how like they've put a lot of those classes online for you able to do. It's yes. super cool. Yeah. Well, I couldn't do it with my work schedule. There's no way I could do it without it all being online. And I was like, man, I don't have an excuse now. You know? yeah. <laughs> and if I pursued philosophy, I'd be broke. So I'm going <laughs> to like get a bachelor's that'll give you a career and then that's get a master's maybe for fun and then get a PhD if you want to teach or something. <laughs> well, that's exactly what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to get the mechanical engineering bachelor's because I mean, I do, uh, I work on data center power equipment. My background's HVAC. Um, I have a real good knowledge of fluid dynamics, electrical, things of that nature. So I was like, it's just natural, you know, um, I love math. I love science. So, uh, I'm gonna go that route and then hopefully get a master's. switch over and get a master's in philosophy and uh, analytic. Yeah. Math background. Yeah. Yes, and uh, maybe when I'm 60, I'll get a PhD. I don't know. <laughs> hey, maybe I did. I like so. I used to work for um, Liberty University Online, and I'd be in consulting, and I would talk to people who were interested in, you know, pursuing degrees and stuff. Um, there was a lady that there within one within one week, I talked to one lady who she was born in uh, 1928, and she wanted to get her master's. And, uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Wow. And, then, and then just, um, less than a week later, I talked to this guy who was born in 1926, who was trying to get his bachelor's and, wow. um, and he said he just wanted to do it for his, his, uh, grandkids to show that it's possible and everything, you know? That's and, awesome. Man. Yeah. And I was like, man, I respect you guys so much. That's so cool. Um, yeah, it's and it's for itself. It's not. It's not for anything else. After they they see the the value in it, just for itself. Um, and I. I mean, I think there's instrumental value to it as well. Of course, that's the reason why I'm pursuing a PhD. I don't think you really need it. Other, you know, like unless you're going to teach, you 
PhDs come a dime a dozen now. Like there's so there's so many millions of PhDs yeah. in the U.S. Uh, or doctorates at least in the U.S. that it's not really unless you're um, really trying to get into the area of study or something like that, or you want to teach. Like it's not it's like it's not a career. It's not right. a career degree usually. You know so. Yeah, that's you. Know, the, all the professors are tenured. You know, it's right. not positions that come open very often. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to do it, you know, um, as um, just a, a, a better, a more knowledge myself. I mean, it's my wife is finishing her bachelor's in education. Um, I think she switched over to administration. I'm not sure, but it's in education. She is a phenomenal writer. Phenomenal. And so I was like, man, if I could, you know, get a little bit of um, formal, you know, a little more formal. I don't have a degree, but, I, you know, trade school I, uh, kind of covered a lot of bases there. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, and, you know, have her, you know, write for me. <laughs> it's hey, you know. that's how, that's how um, I mean. So David Baggett, he's he's a great writer himself. But then his wife is also like she's also a professor of English literature. And dude, when they write together, like they wrote this book called The Moral of the Story, and it was just like so good. There and it's they they can write like he has ideas, he has all the philosophy background, and he can write pretty well. And then she edits like crazy, and it just turns into like this masterpiece. So I mean, you can get that going, man. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It's a it's a talent she's had for a long time and hasn't showcased. And I'm like, man, you have got to write something. You have got to because it's you know when we do things ourselves and people tell people tell us we're good at it, you know, we don't realize. It's a, you know, sometimes it, some people are just really good at it. You know? yeah. And that's what I'm trying to tell them. Like, you're, you're not just above average. You are phenomenal. You should be writing something, you know. So yeah. and she started taking a lot more creative writing classes and, you know, different things. And um, so hopefully one day she'll make us rich. well i mean if you if you're interested in ever publishing in um you know in an academic journal um that was the other thing that uh i was going to bring up was um so i'm the managing editor for uh eleutheria which is the um it's the student journal of the school of divinity um but it's it's peer-reviewed and it's and it's um we only we generally only accept graduate work um but it doesn't really matter we'll take we, we have you know, philosophers contributing to it, you know, people who have, um, so it's, uh, and Dr. Habermas, um, is going to be contributing for the next two volumes that we're, that we're coming out with. Um, but you know, if you want to contribute to that, that's, that's an easy way to, um, start taking credentials. And especially if you're applying to a master's in philosophy or something like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, man, absolutely. That's, uh, I actually have something I'm working on now that I'm trying to develop a little bit. So, um, it's more along the lines of, um, you know, the people always ask, you know, why God created us the way that he did, you know, so, um, you know, and it's more along the lines of the question, you know, could God create perfect moral beings with free will? And that's just kind of an area that, you know, I've done a lot of reading in it and I'm just not satisfied with, you know, a lot it. Uh, a lot of the uh, reading that I have done. So it's something I want to kind of work on and develop a little more, yeah. you know, because it really, it's a question I get a lot, 
You know, why did God make us the way he did? You know, why didn't he make us um, perfectly moral and happy? You know, and usually just give the, you know, the typical answers. I mean, given free will, you know, it may not have been feasible for God to create a world. I mean, he could create a world, but like that, but it may not be feasible, feasible given free will. And, you know, the um, kind of the measuring stick, the privation, you know, the what is good without bad? What is, you know, what are these things that we use as a measure? You know, the worse it is, the greater the good is, you know, and it kind of, it's like a balance on it. So, um, yeah, it's, that's something more of a, uh, I don't know if it would go into modal logic. Um, I don't think it would be something that's modal, but it's, you know, there's something a little more technical is what I think to work on. I mean, there's been, I can tell you, work on deontic logic if you want, um, if you want more information on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and because, you know, it's a, it's an extension of modal logic and, right. uh, and uh, so you're dealing with a lot of the same um, axioms and the same axiom systems. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of work to be done in that, in that area. And it's so, that is a very interesting field of logics because it doesn't, seem to there's so many strange cases where it seems like we're missing something um and and things aren't as consistent as people would hope they they would be so (laughs) yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of uh area areas that are opportune for contribution yeah and it's funny you know it's um i was uh, usually when i'm talking with people about you know philosophy and stuff that's not familiar with it and you know and they're throwing these terms around and stuff like that and i'm like I want you to picture a windshield on a car that has been uh, cracked. You have all these million cracks in there, right? Well, pick one crack, and that's what a philosopher will spend his entire career on. <laughs> because there's so many different ways. I mean, it's you start down this road, and then you go down this road, and then you're down this road. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. I have to find something that I like the most and yeah. focus on that. Because I was overwhelmed in the beginning because there's just so many topics and you can't know it all. You can't study it all. And that's another that's another good um, example of like what Aristotle called phronesis, where it's like you have to you have to mesh the, the, the theoretical with the practical and it has to be done with wisdom. And one of the one of the areas that I've seen that applied to is when you're when you're going through a, a field of study. And, and it's so critical and there's so many technical terms and things like that. And it's so abstract. It's hard to follow. It's hard to follow such abstract concepts. And I think one of the wise things to do is pick a side, just pick a side. It could just be provisionally. You don't have to commit to it completely, but just pick a side for the moment and then let it develop as you read more and more and be like, maybe this is wrong. Maybe I need to revise this. Maybe, you know, just go through that whole belief revision process and accommodate for the new data whenever you come, come by it. But um, when, when I see a person trying to be completely unbiased while they're reading through something, I mean, that's the time when they'll never finish a book, you know, cause it's like, it's hard to not, it's like I said, you don't have to commit to everything, you know, that one stance is saying, I'm just saying that that's one great way of going through the literature. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That's 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 good. You know, and um, Aristotle's one of those guys, man, you could just there's so much 
you can learn. I, I have a, a far greater appreciation for Aristotle now than um, I ever did in the past, you know, because of just how far reaching his work. <laughs> and it's, I think about people now and, and, you know, with this chronological snobbery, they think that we're so much smarter than anybody in the past was. And I'm like, wait a minute. Do you know how many books have been written to interpret these guys, you know, because they were far beyond their time. It was, right. uh, there are some great minds in history and we're talking thousands of years ago. You right. Know? So yeah. It, yeah. That they've had and like some of ideas, some of their ideas that have lasted until today. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we, how much do we talk about, you know, uh, a Restatilian, uh, physics or metaphysics and you know it's just that we keep all of these principles i mean that underlie so much of the philosophical structures today you know we uh tomism i mean look at what uh, aquinas built off of you know right. that wasn't it was a lot of aristotle and uh, aquinas's work so it's um yeah it's phenomenal man we have been blessed with some great minds throughout history so and uh, we've got some great people, the you know, carrying the torch now. It's, yeah. I, I wasn't familiar with philosophy of religion growing up. I'm not huge on the recent history up until now, but it seems to be the phenomenal boom in uh, philosophy in general. You know, it, right. the, the downfall of logical positive, uh, positive. right. I mean, it was. This is the same case with um, axiology. Um, it's actually the axiology is the is the study of uh, values, and um, and there's various ways you can you can talk about it. But it's it was a branch of phenomenology, and that whole discipline kind of collapsed under um, logical positivism, and it was only gaining traction like late 1800s, and then you know like by the 1930s it was never it was like laughed at yeah. and but then after you know logical positivism has has shown to you know have its limits um areas of study such as religious studies which used to be thought of as like a subdiscipline within axiology has just like boomed and so things in the humanities and um have have boomed and i mean you know for <laughs> for better or for worse but um but yeah, and philosophy was one of those things that used to be thought of as within the humanities, and and because yeah. of it, it's starting to flourish again, and in so many different ways, I, I think it's super cool. Yeah, it is, man. It's um, you know, if you would have asked me twenty years ago about philosophy, I'd be like, "What's philosophy? Why? Why did you know a bunch of people sitting around asking questions?" <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it just I would have never thought in a million years I would have ended up in philosophy. And the first time I was ever faced with, uh, you know, prove to me you exist. <laughs> That's stupid. I exist. I mean, you're talking to me. Yeah. No, prove to me that you're not a brain in a vat. And, you know, and they're coming up with this crazy stuff. And then I was like, wait a minute. How do I know I'm not? You know, it kind of really hit me one day and it like it scared the mess out of me. I was like, whoa, all these things that I took for granted, you know, and just assumed uh, I was like, I don't know that. I really don't know that, you know, so it kind of hooked me. It was like, uh, I need to know more. I need to. How can I be comfort 
you know, comfortable in the fact that I exist. That I'm not a brain in a vat. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. yeah. It's a. It's it's truly like it's a. It's something that can always bring you more humility as you as you like try to discover how little you know and things like that. Um, I mean, I also find that like there's some areas of philosophy that are just like, okay, this is so impractical. Um, <laughs> like, let's just like. I mean, but there's certain, and you have to dig so deep to find the significance that has like pervasive significance. So, like trying to answer the liar's paradox, for example. Oh. And then trying to get into, you know, like why is that? Why is that wrong? And you know, it has significant consequences. And you get into metalinguistics, you know, and stuff like that, and you're like, wow, okay, this has very significant consequences for our theories of truth and 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 all of that. Um, but you have to dig so deep for some things and some of them are just so insignificant that I'm like, why are people spending so much time on these things? But, um, but yeah, it's, but, but then I realized, Hey, I mean, like they're saying the same thing about what I'm studying probably, you know? And so I have to trust that, you know, like what they're doing is, is actually beneficial in some way. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's some fruit that's going to come from it. Right. Yeah. 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 There's a guy in the chat. His name is Mark and we went, I'm on discord and uh, we went round and round one night about the liar's paradox and <laughs> it was just like a week ago. So, and I mean, we must've spent two hours, you know, talking about the liar's paradox and, and, you know, and he's like, well, I think there is Canadian. So it's like, well, I think there's something there. And I'm like, no, it's just, there's no content there. You know, it's just when you say that, the contradiction there's just nothing there i mean you're you're it's it's irrationality and he's like oh wait a minute now it's you know so he's yeah. uh he's a cool guy he's, that's great <laughs> i mean yeah that, that's something i had to wrestle with for a while too and i was like and i actually pushed it aside because i was like okay this is this is inconsequential and then i got to like theories of truth and then i was like okay i think i have to revisit this now again <laughs> yeah and uh and because you're you're talking about um, philosophical logic at that point, and you're like, okay, why is something symbolized, and how does it have a referent that goes beyond the theory? How is this meta theoretical? You know, and can you symbolize the meta theory? Because all of a sudden, now you're outside of the theory. So how can you symbolize it? You know, and questions like that. You know, that you're finally getting to, uh, I think, has implications for um, how do you determine whether something's real, like the realism, anti-realism debate in philosophy right. of science and stuff like that. And so I've, I found like sh great significance and in, in things like that, but, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you only come across later in life and you're like, okay, wait, maybe that did have some significance. <laughs> I have avoided semantics and linguistics on purpose. It is just, <laughs> I, you know, it's, if there was ever rabbit holes, it just, it's, you I know, mean, you're, I think it's valuable. It's very valuable, but it's like, it's like math to my wife. I right. Mean, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's a very abstract sort of thing. And, yeah. um, and if you get into analytic philosophy, you have to go through Wittgenstein and, you know, the language games and you have to go through all of that. But I think you'll have an intuitive, like bent towards it. Once you start to understand the overarching concepts that are just written in plain English. Yeah. And, and then you, and then you discover like, Oh, this is why they symbolize it this way or that way. I think I think you'll have a very quick understanding of it if you have a math background. 
So. Okay. Well, that's good to know because <laughs> I have tried to avoid it a lot because, you know, sometimes it, it when you do talk with someone who's who's very astute in linguistics and, you know, s- semantics specifically, it's, um, you know, kind of like we are when we talk about certain topics, you know, you the words we use are they carry a lot of weight and, mm-hmm. you know, and you. It, it, if both parties aren't, you know, privy to that information, then you end up kind of talking past each other, you know. Oh, and, yeah, of course, very easily. And and a lot of those things don't have very, like I said, it's, it has very minimal significance unless you understand the very specific concept context you're talking about. So, right, yeah. Defining terms—that is the number <laughs> one thing. To this day, I still run into myself talking to people, and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's step back. How are you using this word? <laughs> you know, what, what do you mean by this word? That's, a, that's that's also a very practical way that I've seen philosophy influence conversation and stuff like that. Where, and I don't say it out loud, but I do it in my head, and I'm like, okay, there seems to be something awry here, and there seems to be some conflation. So, how do I map this out? First of all, like, where are these concepts within philosophy in general? Is it under metaphysics, epistemology? Uh, ethics and then within there where you know like how is it how is this like mapping down um to the level of explanation that i can like actually i can actually wrap my head around it and then from there i can tease out some distinctions that make you know like the the conflation go away and i'm and i've seen that like whenever i do that in my head and i'm and i'm talking to somebody i you know and i realize that's going on it's much easier to to go through that conversation and be like hey this kind of makes sense if you think about it in this context, actually, or, you know, use analogies and stuff like that at that point. Um, but I mean, I've just uh, like, that's one reason why I would recommend philosophy as a way of developing critical thinking to, to other people, because it just helps you give language to like the, you know, theoretical gray area that you kind of are just lost in if you don't have those terms to, to navigate by, you know? So, yeah, and it's I'm still stunned that not all high schools, you know, force a critical thinking class. Or, yeah. I, I can't believe we're at this point where, you know, as much influence as philosophy has had, that we still don't have mandatory critical thinking classes. And I'm just yeah. like, I know. And it's interesting because like gen ed curricula, like um, a lot of them have been switched to be to say you can oh instead of taking this critical thinking class like logic or something no now you can just take like um music or something or 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 literature which can be critical thinking but it's like it can also be very not critical if the professor wants it to be and you know like those ways in which like the quality just goes down i'm just like oh that's just too bad you know (laughs) well it's funny because i was just looking at the list of classes um, you know, that I'm starting with, and I saw that there was uh music, arts appreciation, something else, and logic. And I'm like, okay, I'm taking logic, you yeah. know. I'm like, why is logic thrown in there with these with these other ones? Shouldn't that be like a mandatory course? You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, we force people to have math, why can't we force people to have math with words? Because that's what logic is, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a way to, you know, uh, quantify and, and to um, have deduction. I mean, it's, you know, or induction. It's it's like it, it is so important. I just uh, maybe that'll be our that'll be our uh, the next generation's uh, uh, 
their push will be, you know. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. We want logic class. Uh, That's right. <laughs> Hashtag critical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start yeah. it in junior high. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen in the next yeah. 10, 20 years. But, um, uh, but I mean, like math too. I mean, logic, math, business, there's a lot of things that can be super boring if you don't apply it to anything. Um, I think that's what's missing with people. I mean, you see this with 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 cognitive biases and, and heuristics. People can do stuff uh, like 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 with you doing HVAC stuff. Like it's like you do the thing first with your hands, and then you can kind of go back and be like, "Oh, that theory was super easy to navigate because I could just imagine myself doing it." And then comparing, like abstracting that that memory and then that imagination into like conceptual you know, fragments, it's, it's like, that's the way people usually learn. They don't start with those conceptual, you know, components and then, and then develop it into something that can be worked practically. They, they do that in reverse. So. Right. Yeah. It's the, I mean, the hands-on, you know, you, right, exactly. yeah. yeah, that's, well, that's what I love about the trade school that I did go to. Cause it, it, it makes me mad. It's, I went enough hours to get an associate's degree, but I didn't get associate's degree, but we spent, um, you know, we would spend equal time uh, lecture and lab, lecture and lab. And it was uh, lab oriented, you know, because that's how a lot of people learn, you know. I mean, for the most part, I would say, I would guess, I'd say at least, you know, analytic people, you know, mm-hmm. people who, who are real analytical tend to, you know, get, they need to be out there. They need to, to see it, work it, and then put it all together. So. Okay, I was going to say, and maybe this is something we can talk about after the show, but um, like if you've got certifications and things like that, um, a lot of those schools have made it so that you can transfer a lot of those for course credits. Um, not as much as they should be worth, obviously, for, yeah. but, you know, something it's it's worth it and it drives the cost down in time. So, yeah, that's I, and I'm looking for as few classes as possible. <laughs> I, I am studying like crazy now. So when I do the placement exam, you know, I, I just hit right on course and go. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. because I do. I mean, I mean, I'm not obviously not a math wizard or anything, but um, I have a you know pretty good understanding, you know, algebra. Well, you know, I didn't take a whole lot of advanced math, but, you know, if, if I can just get past the pre-requisite prerequisites then i'm happy you know it's you know i want to take as few classes as possible (laughs) get done as soon as possible you know time is ticking so right i totally understand that (laughs) oh man it is uh man we are already an hour and a half into it i know is there anything else you want to cover before we cut it off or uh maybe another time <laughs> but, yeah. i'm tired it's time to go to you. are you east coast yeah east coast yeah. oh that's right you said virginia oh yeah it's yeah it's your bedtime man so. <laughs> it's two hours past i'm an old man <laughs> oh I, I feel you yeah get out of here <laughs> man i appreciate you coming on david uh man i learned a lot i have fantastic resources that, you know i'm gonna run this back and um you know listen to it again. I usually listen to them a couple of times and take notes afterwards. So um, I'm terrible about keeping my attention and taking <laughs> notes. So I go back and do it. So um, man, I appreciate all the work you guys are doing too. Uh, you know, it's, we need, 
boots on the ground, you know, people out there and just to reaching out, man. It's uh, it's fantastic, you know. So, uh, and I'd definitely like to have you on again, uh, maybe in the future or something. So, sounds uh, good. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, bud. Thanks for having me. Appreciate All it. right, this this thing is froze up on me, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to get my outro going or not because all those dings you kept hearing was me. Tr- the the screen doesn't want to work for me, so yeah. <laughs> you can connect if you want. <laughs> I can sing a song and pretend we're going out. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, kumbaya. <laughs> the Rufax podcast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, hey, where's uh, uh, Oz? Is not in the Oz is the one who told me to use Streamyard, and now Streamyard's not wanting to work. So. Uh, we may just have an uh, abrupt ending here. <laughs> All right, sounds good. All right, bud. Have a good evening. You as well. Take care. All right. Bye. Oh, StreamYard sucks. Thanks, Oz. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> it's not going to stop. Oh, come on. It's late. Uh-huh. Yeah, I hear you. You keep dinging on me, fool. <laughs> I know what to do it. Task manager, baby. Every time. <sighs> Where's that? Let's go to Chrome. It's always something. Always. Thank you, everybody, for coming on and watching. I have the Atheist Troll next week. That is going to be fun. You do not want to miss that. I can guarantee it. Um... I'm going to try to keep it PG, but um, with Jeff on, you never know what's going to happen. So, uh, hey, it just went away. I had it, and it's gone. Well, we just hang out here all night. That's all right. It's not like I don't have anything better to do. Sit here and play with the computer that's froze up on me and making me look like an idiot. Any day now. Are you kidding me? It's not even on the list. <laughs>